Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As written about and taught in the United States, the history of post-World War II movies often follows this pattern. Italian neorealism and responses to neorealism, the impact of TV, Hollywood spectacle, the French New Wave and responses to the New Wave, Cold War movies, social realism, movies from Sweden, Japan, and China, Hollywood's second golden age, New German cinema, third world cinema, Hong Kong, Bollywood, Australia, and New Zealand, the rise of the blockbuster, the impact of home video, corporate synergy versus independent production, CGI, international co-production, the impact of the internet, and streaming. We might add to this movie-centric list other sociocultural experiences, including civil rights agitation, anti-colonial independence movements, gender and sexuality-based advocacy, various wars, several epidemics, and more than a handful of economic crises. Then, we might sprinkle in some famous and influential people, both inside and outside the arts, like Kennedy, Gandhi, Kubrick, Warhol, Lucas, Thatcher, Reagan, Beyonce. Finally, we drill into specific movie titles and themes we're interested in exploring. In this idiosyncratic history of post-World War II movies, we continue with Parasite and Commentary. It has long been known that movies communicate meaning along two registers. There is a literal register of story, who does what to whom, with what props, saying what lines of dialogue, and so on. And there is a figurative or deeper level in which we unpack social meaning through how we choose to interpret the literal story about who does what to whom with what props. Into this idea of a literal and figurative meaning, we sometimes encounter movies that purposefully organize themselves around standing issues society is grappling with in the now. Jump back a minute and note that it is rare for a sitting American president to weigh in on the value or lack of value in a popular movie. Donald J. Trump, the 45th president of the United States, made such a step. By the way, how bad were the Academy Awards this year? Did you see? And the winner is a movie from South Korea. What the hell was that all about? We got enough problems with South Korea with trade. On top of it, they give him the best movie of the year. Was it good? I don't know. Because Donald Trump is something of an insult comic and quite entertaining, his remarks went over well and were quickly made viral video throughout all of public media. The point of recognizing this is noting something beneath the surface of his remarks, which is important to consider, and that is the idea of nativism. Originally, in the late 1920s, the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts, and Sciences was first organized to do a couple of things, but most notably, it was to help control the economic engine of Hollywood in the face of labor disputes. It was an anti-union organization meant to allow studio heads to gather, set rules of conduct for how the industry would unravel in the subsequent year, and in the end, reflect on the previous year's accomplishments through a small awards ceremony. 
In the ensuing decades, Ampass has become an important cultural leader, but the general public mostly knows Ampass for the annual Academy Awards ceremony, if we even acknowledge that the organization exists at all. Throughout the 90-plus year history of Ampass and the awards, most of the citations and trophies have been given to American-made product, made for American audiences, and only secondarily sent to the wider world. In the last generation or two, though, we've seen an expansion of competitive and interesting movies from outside of the borders of this country. Let's pull back, though, and note that Parasite sits at a nexus between literal stories about people doing things, reciting lines of dialogue with certain props, and figurative meaning, why those characters are doing what they do and how that reflects on the wider society. My way of framing this is to discuss the notion of commentary. First, though, notice that throughout global history, whatever continent you wish to study, people in the past largely made creative expression for their immediate audience of friends and neighbors. As friends and neighbors began to expand through trade routes and meet other friends and neighbors from rival or neighboring tribes to rival and neighboring countries to rival and neighboring continents, the flow of creative expression began to expand wider and wider. I perceive this as a distinction between local vores and being globally organized in trying to think about people who live far, far away from you. This is often best expressed with how we fill our plate for an evening's dinner. Much of the produce we consume on a daily basis, especially in the advanced first world like the United States, is not locally grown, but shipped to us from ports all over the world, and that's what gives us a sense of richness and of flavor. In today's world, the media economy works in very much the same way. There are countries on Earth that have a local vorist point of view about how they are producing work and for whom. And there are other places on Earth, like the United States, where a great deal of our production is purposefully organized and targeted at the wide world all at once. Into this breach between the local and the global, we recognize that it's only made possible through expanded trade routes between societies, sometimes a few miles apart, sometimes thousands of miles apart, separated by open oceans. The fact of this trade expansion has allowed us, in one step, especially through the Internet and all of the communications strategies that technology implies, to know what's happening across the world in multiple time zones instantly, without any moment of having to do research or worry over whether our remarks or products will land with some foreign audience we've never met. Present-day cultural products, then, are often organized specifically to appeal to a worldwide audience, to capture mind share, to cause eyes and ears to pay attention to media entertainment, to force people to buy certain kinds of t-shirts and enjoy certain forms of coffee. This fact of the modern global economy means that the local impulse to please one's friends and neighbors is often several pegs below the globalist impulse to please everybody all at once. And historically, Hollywood has enjoyed the privileges of being the global hegemon in the world of entertainment. From the 1910s to now, Hollywood, as a metaphor for the place name Hollywood up in Los Angeles County, has been able to colonize global markets for movie going, for movie making, for movie craft, for movie development, for new movie technology that is unrivaled by anywhere else on Earth until recently. And that presents an interesting problem, one that harkens back to the remarks from President Trump. 
While we consider Hollywood to be the global giant controlling all aspects of media generally, it's not true, yet we hold to that myth as if it is. Using local distribution networks, Sun Nations, unlike the United States, thrive without ever going global. As an example, there are pockets of national cinema cultures in the continent of Africa that are not meant to be consumed anywhere else beyond the confines of a given tribal border or indeed of a nation state. On the other hand, there are certain global cinematic cultures like Hollywood or France or Germany or Australia who are depending upon making their work sell elsewhere. This is sometimes brokered on the backs of film festival relationships, on distribution networks for what we used to call art house cinemas, but more to the point, it's very often made possible through streaming media today. Meaning, work that is well distributed and properly advertised from anywhere on earth can now do great business and compete directly with the major powers of the Hollywood of yore. Moving closer to movies and returning to Parasite, let's also know that all narratives define their story worlds by presenting characters and events inside specific settings that imply an audience curious about those people in those settings now. Often these narratives present those literal elements I referred to earlier, people wearing clothes, reciting lines of dialogue, dealing with particular problems, and this is sometimes meant to be a figure or metaphor for or a symbol of social forces these characters represent beyond just the named person wearing clothes, reciting lines of dialogue, and dealing with props. For me, commentary, then, is the expression of opinions and explanations for those opinions about situations of significance. It is not new or original to say that movies, or art generally, are always communicating the moods and emotions of creators in order to inflame the moods and emotions of an audience by describing stories and details of the world that will communicate that feeling best. Among the things commentary also does is allow creative people to use their art, whether music, whether it's poetry, whether it's film craft, to express a story that is also criticizing, analyzing, observing the nature of the capital R real in which the creator lives. This finally returns us to our point of view movie today, Parasite, which is a South Korean movie directed by Junho Bong, although he goes by Bong Junho, a convention of Asian societies, which centers on an upstairs-downstairs dynamic plumbing the realities of extraordinary wealth in modern South Korea that lives alongside extraordinary poverty. The gist of the movie's story is that we have two families, the Parks, who are wealthy, and the Kims, who are poor. The Parks live on the income of a father who does some sort of technology work refining headphones, a stay-at-home mother and their two children, and a handful of servants that guide them through life and insulate them from the difficulties of doing physical difficult work that may smell or be dangerous. They live in a wonderful home hidden away behind a gate that itself has multiple stories and is sumptuously designed with a modernist aesthetic that is ascetic, meaning... There's not a lot of stuff that's personalized in this home. It is a showpiece for an architectural digest magazine. This contrasts with the Kim family, two out-of-work adults and their two adult children who are strivers, ambitious, trying to outstrip the limitations of their lives, and the Kim family live in a half-underground basement apartment that's dirty, 
vermin-filled, bug-infested, and is subject to periodic flooding. Plus, the plumbing is a terrible mess. Ma and Pa Kim have mostly given up on what their middle years may provide them as work, but their children have not. Through lucky connections, Ki Woo Kim, the son of this family, has a friend in college who is a tutor to the wealthy Park family. His job is to tutor Da Hai Park, who is working her way through an English curriculum. Kai Wu agrees to the arrangement because it pays an incredible amount of money, and from that point he establishes a beachhead of observing how the Park family lives, and discovering that he can find ways of bringing aboard his family as some of their caregivers. For example, he works out a condition where Ki Jung, his sister, is allowed to become the art tutor to the Park's son. His name is Da Sang. Kiwu also realizes that Mr. Park employs a driver, and eventually helps his father take over the job from the original driver through a conspiracy of making the former driver look like a really bad guy. Finally, Kiwu and his sister are able to engineer the ouster of the Park family's original housekeeper, Mungguang Guk, by making it seem that she's carrying a communicable virus. By the time we get halfway through the movie, the entire Kim family have effectively moved into the Park household to enjoy the fruits of hugely well-paid labor that is easy for them, so long as they are subordinate to the needs of these wealthy people and their open pocketbook. But there is a problem. At a certain point in the story, Mungguang, the former housekeeper, returns in the night, knocks on the door while the Kim family are enjoying a private bacchanal in the Park's residence because the Parks are out of town. Mungguang explains, "I need access to the house. I left something in the basement." We travel down into the basement, where we watch Mungguang open a trap door that leads to a sub basement, where she's kept her husband for years, in the basement of the basement of this wealthy people's home. How is this possible? Well, we're in South Korea, and it's a bomb shelter for surviving a possible missile and nuclear attack from North Korea. That's why it was built. Mungguang is aware of this facility because she was attached to the original owner of this home, who built it with this sub-basement to a basement. Further, her husband has gambling debts, so she's helped him disappear into that sub-basement, bringing him food, news of the world, and companionship when possible, all without exposing him and telling absolutely no one. But when the Kims. Arranged for her ouster, she's removed from the house, and her husband begins to starve to death. Now, when all of this blows up, and the Kims realize what's going on, they determine they must get rid of the Gooks, and they wish to instead take advantage of the sub-basement themselves. Things go wrong. Let's leave it at that. To note that by the time the movie ends, multiple family members among the Parks and Kims do not survive the narrative. And we're left to linger on the notion that this sub-basement of a basement represents something much greater than the whole of the narrative we've watched, which is simply the upstairs-downstairs affairs of a wealthy family employing a poor family, and both sides speaking through and past one another until terrible violence occurs. Okay, that's a lot of noise, but let's get into this just for a moment. It's easy to describe this movie as a kind of satire or black comedy, and while I think that's true, for my taste, I believe this is a horror movie. What makes it horrific is we watch cheek to jowl 
how impoverished people serve at the beck and call of the wealthy, and the wealthy don't seem aware of the real trials and tribulations of people who can't feed themselves. In fact, among the things the Kims do when they begin to acquire modest means through this new employee with the Park family is enjoy better food than they once had. And still, the increase in income that they do earn from the Parks by serving this wealthy family is not enough to keep them out of being flooded from their half-basement apartment that is overcome during a torrential rainstorm. One of the senses we cannot gratify when we watch a movie is our sense of taste. Another is our sense of smell. And these details help characterize the way that these two families are apart from one another. Because of where the Kims live and spend the night in their half-basement apartment, they smell musty. They are not perfumed, whereas the parks are astringently clean and kept away from the discomfort of being around the earth itself. These contrasting smells and the flavors that roll along with it, depending on what they eat, how it is prepared, and so on, are remarked upon in a couple of pivotal moments in the movie. Of course, we can't smell what they smell or taste what they taste, but we have those experiences in our private life which help us understand the distinctions between different groups of people we may meet, in particular the unhoused versus the wealthy, the middle class versus the new immigrant from a culture we're unaware of. These mixings are part of what makes this movie go. I also want to pull your attention to the fact the movie is magnificently set designed with a brilliant widescreen image that is a super rectangular 2.39 horizontal units to one vertical unit. You can literally sit close to the screen and play tennis as your eyes move left to right with passing activity. You'll also come to realize that this movie, like a great many South Korean movies of note, swings wildly in moods. In some moments, you're willing to laugh. Funny things are being said or done that are indeed quite strikingly hilarious. On the other hand, there can be almost instantaneous switches to a sense of dread or doom. And there are periodic bursts of violence that don't come from nowhere. They're not completely without preparation, but they are so unlike much of the rest of this sort of comedy of manners that they really hurt the eyes and ears when they finally erupt. This movie was budgeted at less than $12 million, which is less than a name brand A-level star will get for being in a Hollywood vehicle today. And the whole of it looks wonderful. All of the performers are vigorous and good, and the movie became a smashing success. In the North American market, it earned more than $50 million, but beyond the North American market, it earned more than $200 million. Let's note that the American audience does not any longer define the global audience. That the American audience, which has a preponderance for entertainment in the English language, with a dominant interest in violence and certain forms of sensuality and profanity, is not shared the world over. <laughs> In the week that Parasite was released in the United States, as a point of reference, it was up against Joker from Todd Phillips, a retelling of that DC Comics secondary character and villain, The Joker. I should also offer that this is a weird flick. Parasite will be disagreeable to some viewers because its mood whipsaws in all kinds of emotional directions, as I've already said. It also has a very ambiguous conclusion. At the end of the movie, 
because of what has happened and the violence that has occurred in the last 15 to 20 minutes of the piece, the characters are forced to make decisions about how their futures will unravel. And we're left with the untidy feeling that things will not turn out well. That lingering sense of disappointment in the potential of these characters we've come to perhaps enjoy and befriend, at least parasocially through the screen, unsettles some viewers. On the other hand, because this movie is commenting quite directly on the nature of wealth being insensitive, indeed ignorant of anybody else in the world, is part of what makes that final conclusive ambiguity so powerful. In the end, Parasite is a difficult movie. It is also a rich example of cinematic technique, from the use of its sound and its film score, to its image-making, lights, and special effects work. And then there are the performers. But really, as you go down the cast list, to most Westerners, these performers will not be known because they don't work in English language movies, at least not very often. And it was good in 2019 for Ampass to recognize this movie, which received the Academy Award for Best Motion Picture of the Year and also the Academy Award for Best International Feature. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin Kirai. Boop boobity doo.